0: of 1 Kings 18 as we continue a series we began just a couple of weeks ago, a series looking at the life and ministry of Elijah, a life and ministry full of faith, full of courage uh, that I trust we continue to see in wonderful ways how it points us, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so let me read all those 19 verses for us and uh, then pray for our time together tonight and we'll get going. So listen as the Lord does speak to you. Uh, through his powerful word. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go! Tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you for the mercy and grace that you have promised us in Jesus Christ and even bestowed upon us the Holy Spirit within our hearts. He who indwells us that we might see the truth of this text. So open our eyes that we might learn its lessons that we might see your son in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know many of you in this room have read or are familiar with John Bunyan's brilliant book, "The Pilgrim's Progress," which is an allegory full of, of clarity. And you might know that genre well enough to know that not all allegories are as clear as Bunyan's book is. I mean, children, if you think about an allegory, it's just simply a story that teaches a deeper meaning, often through things like characters and in places and events. And part of the brilliance of Bunyan's book, and no doubt part of the reason why people throughout the generations and ages have so profited from his book, because you don't have to wonder about the lessons he means to teach through characters and places and events. I mean, just think about the simple names that he puts on certain characters. You have the main character, Christian, who eventually meets Evangelist. In time, he meets Worldly Wise Men, and then he gets a friend named Faithful. It's clear enough who those characters are meant to portray. And the places are the same, aren't they? The city of destruction, doubting castle, a vanity fair. You have even the journey towards celestial city. And I tell you that because when we come to 1 Kings 18, this early portion of this magnificent chapter, what we find ourselves doing is meeting a man that's largely forgotten to the narrative of Elijah's life. It's a man named Obadiah. A man that one preacher called... Mr. Debatable. He's a man whose name simply means servant of the Lord. A part of the reason for the debate that belongs to Obadiah is, well, what kind of servant of the Lord is he? Is he a servant of courage? Or is he a servant of compromise? And it's going to become quite clear soon enough, I trust, that it's true according to God's word. This is a man who genuinely loves the Lord he is, however, no Elijah. He's strikingly different to the man that occupies these chapters in our beloved book, God's Word. But what we're going to find out that the story before us tonight with, with Obadiah and with Elijah is simply a lesson among others, but what I want to mention here at the beginning is a lesson that God uses, doesn't he? He delights to use different people to accomplish his different purposes. Because Obadiah is no Elijah. And surely none of us are going to be called to be like Elijah. Yet many might be called to be more like Obadiah, to that tricky business of what it means to be a faithful follower of the Lord in a faithless context. So as we get to the end tonight, what I want to do is just bring a couple of lessons to your attention from our theme of Elijah Returns. But to get there, I just want to highlight the three characters that dominate these 19 verses. Because first we have Ahab, uh, we might call a servant of failure. Then we have Obadiah, who rightly is a servant of fear. And then Elijah shows up, however briefly, as the servant of faith. Because in so many ways, the text before us tonight, it, it really is just preparation for this cosmic confrontation that comes at Mount Carmel. Later on in the chapter, I mean, even earlier this week, I was reading this chapter at night with the children and ended at verse 19. And one of the children says, why did you stop right there? It's just getting good. (laughs) Which I think is how many Christians treat this passage. But by the end, we want to see there's actually something quite stunning about what's happening in the first 19 verses. Before we get to the amazing realities that also belong to the end of the chapter. So the first servant we want to notice is Ahab. Ahab, who is the servant of failure. Notice again what we're told about the time of our text. Verse 1 tells us, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now, Students, I hope you know what was going on in Elijah's life during those many days. What have we seen in recent weeks? Uh, but Elijah showed up, in the consciousness of God's people, like the spiritual comet streaking through the sky there in Israel. He just showed up and told Ahab, according to the Lord's word, no rain, no dew, until God says again. And the Lord just whisked him off to the brook Kirith, where he was fed by these raven chefs every morning and evening, until that brook dried up, and the Lord sent him off, we saw last week, into Zarephath and Sidon which was nothing more into the belly of the beast, where Queen Jezebel, that wicked and vicious king, her father ruled. So God sent him behind enemy lines into enemy-occupied territory, where for years he was sustained through the provision of this widow, a widow whose son died at the end of chapter 17, and in the first recorded resurrection of all of Scripture, Elijah brings back the widow's son from the dead, and so for these many days what had Elijah experienced, but God's faithfulness to provide for his servant. But now the time has come, clearly, in the third year, something like three and a half years after he last saw Ahab. And notice what the Lord says in verse 1. The summons is, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah begins to make the 60 or so mile journey back to Samaria. And, and notice what we're told in verse two: the famine was severe in Samaria. More, more literally, the text says the famine had a, a firm hold on Samaria. As of course it would, for over three years, no rain. For over three years, no dew. If your lawn is anything like mine, after the summer drought that we've had here in Texas, cracks, dry grass. Brown and and brittle there in your front yard. How much more must the grass, the vegetation have cracked under Elijah's feet as he's making those many miles back towards Samaria? Perhaps cracks in the ground, much more than like little slits growing into cracks like small streams. And of course, it was going to be that way because this was God's covenantal curse falling upon his people who pursued unrepentance, who pursued idolatry, were with full vigor in great heinousness before the Lord. So it's why this covenantal curse would speak about the Lord's discipline falling on his people as though iron lay hold of the land. The land would become like iron. The heavens would be shut up like brass. And notice what Ahab, this servant of failure, is doing according to verse 5. He goes to Obadiah and tells his Servant, something like a mayor of his palace, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. I think you're meant to see something about just how blind Ahab is in the midst of his sin here. Instead of seeking the Lord's face in repentance, he's seeking to save the faces of his cattle. Instead of bowing before the Lord in repentance, he's stretching out across the land to find provision for his animals. And it's a not-so-subtle mocking, I think, even of the prophet, I'm sorry, the false god, Baal. Because, of course, Ahab and Jezebel, they promoted this pagan religion of Baalism in the land. And Baal, as we said a few weeks ago, Baal is supposed to be the god of rain and harvest. Yet what's the land That's worshipping Baal, but cracked, dry, and utterly barren of harvest because there's been no rain. And so they have to go looking for it to find it. It's quite striking, isn't it? That even though in front of his very attention and his experience there in the promised land, that King Ahab is missing the simple truth. This discipline has come from your disobedience and he can't see it. Now true it is even that servants like you and me so often might hear the word of the Lord, see actions of the Lord that ought to be altogether obvious to us what the Lord means to communicate. And yet oh, we miss it altogether. So focused are we on our own little worlds that we inhabit so the servant of failure now leads us to this servant of fear, this man named Obadiah, because notice what our English Bibles do with the parenthesis of verse 3. It tells us, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. It's, it's an amazing summary of his spiritual identity, isn't it? I mean, I hope that this would be a desire you have to be known before the Lord as someone who fears him greatly. It's one of the perfect summaries of true spirituality in all scripture, that he fears the Lord genuinely, truthfully. She fears the Lord greatly. And part of that fear has overflown into Obadiah's life to be a direct contrast to the vicious and violent Jezebel. Look at verse 4. She cut off the prophets of the Lord, but Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So again, this contrast exists here early in the passage between the servant of failure, Ahab, and the servant of fear, Obadiah, because Ahab is just interested in how he can feed his animals. Obadiah is interested in how he can preserve the Lord's word. These hundred prophets hidden by fifties in the caves. But his fear, of course, isn't perfect. Actually, as the text continues, we find out how Imperfect Obadiah actually is. Uh, Because you notice what Ahab commands in verse 5 and 6. You go this way, I'll go that way. Let's see what we can find. And what Obadiah finds quite quickly is Elijah. Look at verse 7. As Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? We, we don't know how Obadiah recognized Elijah. Maybe was he, he was in the king's court three and a half years before when Elijah first showed up. Maybe because he was like the mayor of Ahab's palace and he knew intimately Jezebel's most wanted list, that he, he knew what Elijah would have looked like. Whatever it was, is it you, Elijah? Obadiah asks, and actually in the original, uh, Elijah just says, I. Go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And that's where Obadiah's fear shows just how imperfect it really is. Some of you might sympathize with my own experience. That is, certain sentences can stick to your soul much longer than you ever thought that they would. For example, one of those came years ago when I was at another church and we were meeting in the city for this monthly gathering of local pastors. And I was sitting next to a brother on staff in the church where I was. He was on my left. And he began to talk about all of these difficulties that belonged to his life in that moment of following Jesus. And the man across the table sitting from us, he simply said, Well, you are a quagmire of inconsistencies, aren't you? And it stuck with me because Christians, aren't we? So often full of inconsistencies and contrasts between what we believe and what we do. Where we strive successfully and where we fight failingly. Because here's Obadiah. A man who's fearing the Lord greatly, but what we see him, once he meets Elijah, his fear of man begins to swallow up his fear of God. That's actually quite clear. You don't need to read the next few verses. We can capture the conversation with a simple summary. He says, here's the deal, Elijah. We've been looking for you for a long time. And if if you tell me to go back, I know what tends to happen with you. You just disappear. So I'm going to go back and tell Ahab, come meet Elijah. We're going to come back here. You're not going to be here. And he's going to kill me. Further, Elijah, don't you know what I've done while you've been gone? I've saved these fifties in caves, prophets of the Lord's word. I alone have preserved them. And now you want me to go back and die? Sometimes, uh, many Christians, when the Lord calls them into a place of costly obedience, maybe we like Obadiah can fall back on past performance thinking that that should keep us from the present difficulty. Don't you know what I've done for the Lord? And now you're asking me to potentially lay it all aside? Well, Elijah makes it quite clear what Obadiah is to do. Look at verse 15. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So the servant of failure. Lived with this servant of fear, Obadiah. And now we get to the servant of faith with Elijah. For verse 17 tells us that Ahab simply asks him a question. Is it you? You troubler of Israel. It's a more technical term than you might realize in the Old Testament history. Now you would find that that same idea. Uh, In the book of Joshua with the story of a man named Achan. Who had taken plunder that belonged to the Lord. And his disobedience brought the Lord's discipline. Because he was troubling Israel in his sin. And here is Ahab saying to Elijah, "You're, you're the troubler. You're the one who brought all of this upon us. But the reality is much different, isn't it? Verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 18 Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. If you know that story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, it was before all of Israel's eyes that they were going to have to deal with the true trouble, which was going to lead to the execution of the one who sinned. Rather ominously, it seems as though for Ahab's experience... What does Elijah do? But in verse 19 it says, hey, bring those 950 false prophets you have. We need to show before all of Israel who's really responsible for what's happened here. So it's a text, isn't it? That is preparation for the confrontation that's soon to come. I wonder what kind of servant you might be best defined as. One of failure, one of fear. One of faith. I wonder also, perhaps you're like me, as the word began to spread throughout the land there in Israel and Samaria, that Elijah's back. I mean, you get the picture, don't you, by the end of this chapter, that everyone's there watching this incredible confrontation at Carmel. That word had gone throughout the land that the Lord's servant had had returned, this man that maybe they thought was dead, that had mysteriously and almost majestically disappeared altogether from the nation's experience, suddenly word would have been going out throughout the streets, he's back, he's back. And sometimes if you've read stories where you have a major character that disappears and then comes back, sometimes that, that arrival. Sometimes that return, you know, elicits motions of of comfort or courage. Maybe it surprises or shocks other times. the, The arrival causes tremors and terror to abound. But what I want to show you here at the end are two simple ways that we're to know something more about the Lord's character towards his people in the return of Elijah. Preservation and visitation. So first I want you to see here at the end how Elijah's return shows the Lord's preservation. What was the the highest family in the land? They who were supposed to be servants for the people's good trying to do to the Lord's word but exterminate the prophets and extinguish the truth. And what does God do? He sends Elijah away and miraculously preserves him. But he doesn't just do it in that fashion, he has one there on the inside, this kind of subversive spirituality of Obadiah, perhaps somewhat like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel in the empire of Babylon, or even Paul tells the Philippians in his letter to that church at Philippi that there were many in Caesar's household at that time who were saints of the Lord, that Obadiah is here preserving the Lord's word as he is giving water and bread to the prophets. And I hope you know your your history well enough to know that when it looks like culture is sliding ever further, nations are sliding ever longer into darkness, decay, and, and spiritual death, and it seems as though the light of the gospel is altogether gone, and perhaps it seems like it's altogether extinguished, that we know the Lord preserves His Word in ways that we can't. Always understand in ways that even is going to shock Elijah in chapter 19. The Lord preserves a remnant for himself that his word will continue to go to all the nations. And so the return shows us not just the Lord's preservation. It also shows us the Lord's merciful visitation. So There's faithful preservation of his word. There's a merciful visitation of his word. Because again, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 18... Uh, The simple summons is, go show yourself to Ahab, and what? Children, I will send rain upon the earth. The arrival of Elijah is going to signal revival in the land. And it's a stunning reality when you realize, according to the word in the Old Testament, such revival was going to ordinarily come to covenant breakers, like here in our text, when they repented of their sin. But do you see? No one's repenting here of their sin. Yet still what's God doing? Showering his mercy upon the undeserving. That Elijah's return signals the Lord's visitation upon his people. And how is it that an holy God can come draw near to an unholy people? except by his merciful provision. Because even the way the text makes it seem there in verse 1 of chapter 18, it's as though it was saying in the third year, when the time had come, when the time was right, the Lord came to visit his people. And surely it should signal in our mind another time, when it was right, when the time had come, that the Lord was going to visit his people by sending his servant Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, to bring mercy upon the undeserving Mercy that was going to come through a contest with the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Mercy that was going to come as he defeated sin, Satan, and death through his burial and resurrection. Mercy that was going to come to people like you and me. Nothing more than failures spiritually in this life. But Jesus' amazing work as the Lord's servant, as he takes people like you and me, doesn't he? Failures. And he takes us, and he makes us, the trophies of, of fear and faith, that we too might know him, love him, and serve him. So Elijah's back, and everything's about ready to change by the end of the chapter. Elijah returns, and it shows the Lord's faithful preservation. Elijah returns, and it shows the Lord's merciful visitation. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you continually visit us by your word and spirit to sustain us, to equip us, to correct us, to train us. And we ask even this night that you would train our eyes to look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might know him more, that we might serve you faithfully, and that you might be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.